Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm the host, David Rothkopf, and I am in New York City. Uh, and it is uh, summertime here, and we are entering phase two, and you can actually Go to a restaurant in New York City. It's amazing. Uh, I haven't tried it yet, but uh, that's that's just you know what we're looking forward to here in the city. We are joined today um, by uh, uh, three terrific guests: Natasha Bertrand, who is the national security correspondent at Politico and an MSNBC contributor. Hi, Natasha. Hi. Thanks for having me. Uh, and Chris Liu, who was the cabinet secretary in the Obama administration, also deputy secretary of labor. Hi, Chris. Good to be here. And David Sanger, our friend who's been there with us from the beginning of the New York Times, who's off with the cows in Vermont. Hi, David. You caught us in, you know, the, the moment where we're not making maple syrup. So instead, we'll make foreign policy. Yeah, no, in Vermont, there's two parts of the year. The part you make, <laughs> maple syrup and mud season. I mean, I think... The rest of the year. Yeah, mud yeah, season. The rest, right. the rest right. of the year. Black so, fly it, season. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, uh, I noticed, uh, it was hard to notice in the midst of a lockdown, but it's the first week of summer. Uh, and I guess my questions all sort of turn about what kind of summer we can expect, whether we can expect a long, hot summer uh, and, uh, you know, disruptions in the street recently suggest we might. COVID uh, is not going away and, in fact, is increasing in more than uh, 60% of the country. Uh, and there are potential disruptions from abroad, and our experts know about all these things. Let me just go, first of all, in cycle and get some outlook on these things. Natasha recently uh, you've done some writing about uh, concerns that people have of right-wing extremist groups, these so-called boogaloo movement groups, that they might even make a move on on Washington, D.C. Uh, in digging on this, what, what's your prognostication about the summer ahead? Are you worried that this is potentially going to be a violent summer? So it, it depends. The boogaloo boys, as they're as they call themselves, I guess, are known to exploit protests and they're known to exploit unrest um, because ultimately what they want is to create a kind of shooting war between the police protesters that will then allow them to, you know, take up arms against the government, against law enforcement and bring about this second American revolution. And for some, a second civil war. Um, some people have more racial motivations as part of the group. Um, so I think what we saw DHS officials warning about um, on Friday when I when I got that memo was going into this weekend, which is last weekend, when there are going to be all of these protests, you need to be on heightened alert for the possibility that these guys are going to be trying to create chaos. 
So I think that if we see more Black Lives Matter protests throughout the summer, which is likely, then we're probably going to continue to see the threat from not only um, far-right extremists, but other groups as well who try to take advantage of, of the, the civil unrest and take advantage of the fact that the police are out in the streets. For Boogaloo Boys, they want to target police directly, which is another reason why they have their set site on Washington, D.C., just because of the huge law enforcement presence. So it remains to be seen, but this is definitely something they look to to exploit. Yeah, and we and I'd like to come back a little bit to whether that benefits uh, the administration or not. But let me turn to Chris. Um, I, I've noticed and I've followed closely what you've been talking about. I saw a recent TV appearance in which you were talking about um, the impact of COVID on communities of color in the United States. And I think this feeds into a concern that a lot of people have about the summer uh, ahead of us in that um, the, the poorest people, the most disenfranchised people in the country are the ones who are going to be squeezed the hardest as we head into the summer by the disease itself, but also by the economic consequences. And I've seen as recently as this morning a projection that perhaps 40% of black-owned, small, medium-sized businesses will go out of business this summer. Uh, and uh, when you look at uh, programs from the federal government, programs from state governments running out, uh, it, it's hard to see where these people will turn, Chris. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what you think the outlook is there and whether you think there's a potential for that causing social problems. Well, David, you raise a good point. I mean, Congress is going to be engaged in the next couple of weeks on, in a debate on police reform, and that's very important. And, you know, hopefully there's uh, room for common ground. But there's a broader question about systemic racial inequalities, economic health care, education. Those are going to be much harder to fix. And we've seen all of those inequities being exposed over the past couple of months with not only the pandemic, but obviously with the protests over the last couple of weeks. If you walk around any uh, major city, you see, you know, most of downtowns or much of downtowns shutter now, both because of COVID and obviously concerns about protests as well. And that's disproportionately affecting a lot of low-wage service workers, which tend to be people of color. These are people who have, uh, who on average earn less, have less of a safety net, and who uh, in a situation like this are most likely teetering on the edge. And we've got a lot of the government assistance programs about to run out at the end of July. Uh, we're facing another potential wave of layoffs with state employees of teachers, police, and firefighters. Again, another category of largely people of color. And you've got a U.S. Senate that basically says, you know what, we don't really think we need more money right now. Let's start talking about deficit reduction. So you have a lot of the... Um, potential seeds of greater unrest this summer. And frankly, um, you know, I don't think we know how this is going to turn out. We don't really know how these protests are going to go. We certainly don't know where COVID is going to go right now, but it doesn't all seem to be heading in a very good direction at the moment. So, David, one of the things that was talked about when we've seen some of these demonstrations was that there uh, may well have been some uh, uh, foreign governments involved in provocation. We've seen this before. We've seen in the past uh, the Russian government get involved in supporting the Trump campaign in 2016. Uh, we've 
heard a lot of predictions that in the run-up to the 2020 elections, we'll have foreign governments getting involved. Um, and stirring up division with disinformation as part of that, going for these weak points as part of that. And it seems like, as I was mentioning earlier, following Natasha's comment, that you know the Trump administration, if you sort of look at the numbers, they're not going to be able to win this thing on a straight-up basis. And they may fiddle with the voting on, on, on the one end of it, but stirring up trouble, stirring up fear, promoting the idea that unrest um, uh, is coming and, and, and the world needs him to stabilize, it seems like part of what they would want the, their foreign supporters to do. So as you who track this kind of foreign intervention uh, very closely, um, uh, may you know may have some insight about it. What do you predict? Well, there are a couple of elements of the David. And I'd be interested in hearing Natasha on this as well because she's written uh, really interesting stuff on the the Russian strategy. And the first part of it is we have to remember that what the Russians are doing is exploiting divisions that we ourselves have here in the United States. So there is some question about how much you can blame them for being the opportunistic megaphone to something that's happening indigenously here in the U.S. Um, once you get past that, then you ask the question, how do they pick up on a conspiracy theory, on um, some kind of piece of misinformation and further broadcast it. And we've documented in the Times a few interesting examples of where the Russians have basically simply taken um, a conspiracy theory that was running among Americans and then given that a bit more juice. It's going to be a harder thing to fight in 2016, in 2020 than it was in 2016, because the Russians are way down the learning curve here. And what they've learned is that while in 2016 you could broadcast this stuff right out of the Internet Research Agency, in 2020 they'll see you coming. And as a result, what you need to do is put the misinformation, the disinformation into the hands of real Americans with real accounts and get them to go broadcast it out. And so far, it looks like that strategy is working. Now, to your last point on, on President Trump, it's a, been a pretty inconsistent performance they have had here. On the one hand, the president shows no leadership and no interest in solving this problem. On the other hand, his Department of Homeland Security shows a lot of interest in solving this problem. And they've gotten out there in a pretty aggressive way. So um, you've got an administration that is, no surprise, at war with itself about how much it's going to get out to get involved in keeping the Russians out of the system. Natasha, do you want to pick up on that? Yeah, I mean, I think what David said towards the beginning there about the Russians simply exploiting the chaos and divisions that we have already here is important not only because of, you know, the racial tensions that we have and the divisions in that sense, but also because, you know, the president is the one that fans these flames so often. I mean, we see just this morning that he tweeted a completely baseless statement that millions of mail-in ballots were going to be fraudulently, they were going to be faked essentially by foreign countries who were going to try to interfere again in 2020 in that sense. I mean, going to OG&I, Office of Director of National Intelligence, for comment on that was, 
was almost laughable, but we, we did. And they said, we aren't going to comment. We refer you to the White House. But this is the kind of thing that just allows this doubt to creep into the minds of American voters, even without the threat of actual Russian interference. So if they want to exploit that kind of um, that kind of um, doubt in the American people's minds that already exists about the, the legitimacy of the election, then that's really easy on top of what the president's already doing. Um, Chris, you know, you, you, you may sit there and think, it's strange. I'm sitting here between these two national security commentators, and uh, typically I'm commenting, you, meaning you, on, on domestic issues, and you were the deputy secretary of labor. And um, for most of the time that you were doing your work in the Obama administration, the world of domestic politics and the world of national security stayed pretty separate. And yet here we are in the summer of 2020, and the world of national security seems to be directly linked to our ability to manage a pandemic that's killed 120,000 people or not to manage it, the consequent pressures that places on us economically, uh, on uh, the, res- the response to police brutality in the United States, perhaps exacerbated by those conditions. Um, uh, and as, as both David and Natasha have indicated, on domestic terror groups and foreign governments trying to play on domestic divisions. For the first time in my lifetime, I really sense that the number one national security story of 2020 is a U.S.-based story. It's a, it's a story about um, divisions within our society and how different groups are trying to exploit them. Um, and I'm just wondering what your perspective is on that. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, look, th- these divisions exist, and as Natasha said, they're exacerbated by a president who seems to feed on them. But at bottom, this goes back to competence again, and it's the competence, whether you look at John Bolton's criticisms, General Mattis's criticisms of the way this president has conducted his foreign policy, his lack of interest in understanding issues, the erratic nature in which he uh, conducts that, the transactional way that he deals with foreign leaders. And you can then mirror that to what happens in domestic politics and how you react to broader crises. I mean, this is a president um, who uh, has no real interest in trying to solve some of these underlying problems. He is more interested in that, you know, photo op, that PR opportunity. Uh, and, and you know, we've seen it sort of blow up in his face over the last couple of weeks, whether it's the Tulsa rally, whether it's the St. John's, you know, Bible stunt that he does. And so you can actually just kind of draw a, a line that connects all of these things together back to competence in government, back to stability, back to kind of guardrails and norms and all of the things that, you know, John Bolton professed to talk about when he did his interviews, but which haven't been upheld. Uh, and I think at bottom, um, what we see right now is a White House that is increasingly in crisis, a president who feels under siege. And I think that makes him unpredictable, not only on the domestic stage, but on the foreign stage as well. Well, you know, David, it's interesting. Last week, you and I talked a little bit about the Bolton um, book. And of course, you know, last Thursday, the Bolton book was a big story. And, and, um, and now, you know, it's, it's the next week. And it's already petering out, which is kind of interesting because, you know, the Bolton book showed that the president of the United States uh, said to Xi Jinping, go ahead, set up 
concentration camps. I don't mind so long as you've got to deal with me. Please help me out. Uh, that it said that he was seeking uh, to aid foreign autocrats and putting his thumb on SDNY. And, and there's been enough people at F- SDNY in the interim uh, that he, uh, you know, there were a whole bunch of insights regarding Helsinki and, and Putin um, uh, around Maduro. And all these foreign policy stories seem to peter out. And the president went up and got up on a stage in Tulsa in front of 6,800 people in a 19,000-seat arena. And he started talking about how he could walk down a ramp and how he could drink a glass of water. And, and, and this international stuff just, it seems to be evaporating in the summer air. To what do you account, to account that? That's an interesting question. I mean, it is of interest to all of us and to the listeners of Deep State Radio because they wouldn't be listening if they weren't interested in that kind of material. Over the weekend, I wrote about what we learned about policy toward Iran and North Korea uh, from the Bolton book and Bolton's argument that the primary issue was that Trump kept undercutting his, his own policy, wanted to sound tough, but really wanted to just get out and announce a deal, any deal that uh, would enable him to say that he'd accomplish what no other president had. And I found the accounting uh, pretty fascinating. But I think for most Americans, there is now a resonance in what Bolton has said, what Mattis has said, what Kelly has said, before that, what Rex Tillerson barely said. And they all give you a pretty consistent account of a president interested primarily in himself and his reelection, who doesn't spend any time reading uh, his intelligence uh, reports and briefings, uh, who spends more time um, moving from decision to decision and then revisiting them, making it impossible to put policy together. And what do we discover? That for his core supporters, this doesn't make any difference. His core support is basically the way his core support was. For those who um, would never vote for Donald Trump and didn't in 2016, I don't think it's moved the needle either. They're just saying he's exactly what we thought he was. And so the only big question is, how does it move things in a number of swing states? How does it move things with... um, uh, with women, suburban women in particular? How does it move things with uh, women who did not go to college, who um, have been uh, strongly in favor of, of Trump before? And I can't measure right now whether or not much of this is going to make a difference. My guess is that this will not be much of a foreign policy election, that this is going to be an election on whether you want to keep the show going of Donald Trump And it's hard to be an insurgent when you're also running the country or trying to or pretending to. You know, Natasha, listening to David, it strikes me that we have all seemingly contracted Trump's own pathologies. In other words, Trump doesn't really care about the world. Trump doesn't really care about history. Trump doesn't really care about foreign policy. Trump only cares about those things as they pertain to his election. Um, and, you know, there are big things happening in the world that he doesn't even note. You know, I mean, I think this past weekend it was 
you know, 90 degrees in the Arctic circle, you know, that, that, you know, the planet is on fire and there's some really giant stuff, but Trump doesn't see any of that. Trump sees 2020 as being about whether Trump gets to keep his job and Trump has the microphone and the media tends to follow behind that and say, well, 2020 is about that. And we view COVID in terms of Trump and we view street violence in terms of Trump and we, we, we seem to all have contracted his narcissism and you know David's probably right this is probably not going to be a year in which we talk about Russian aggression or disintegration in the Middle East or the fate of NATO or global warming or, or China's abuse of the Chinese people or I mean you know last week there was a massive um, a cyber attack on Australia, um, which in another world might have been a big story, you know, and it doesn't seem to register right here. It must be tough for you dealing with an editor and saying, well, you know, there's the planet and I'm the national security correspondent. And they say, well, what about, you know, mail-in ballots? Yeah, so it's it's Trump all the time. And I think that's also contributed to a lot of the fatigue, obviously, that we're seeing from the, the public writ large on these revelations that come out in the John Bolton book. It's, it's either more of the same for his supporters who have never cared, or it's more of the same for the public that didn't vote for him and doesn't support him, um, who weren't going to vote for him anyways, David said. So I, I do think that part, you know, the news cycle just moves very quickly as well. So it's it's the Trump show, but it's also, there's just never ending scandal after scandal after scandal. So the Bolton book was overshadowed, of course, on Friday night, late Friday night, when the attorney general fired the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. And that came as a complete surprise to everybody. And that became the biggest story of the weekend, bearing everything else. Tomorrow, it'll be something new, most likely. Um, so it's it's hard for the National Security Course wanted Politico to keep up with everything. Imagine how hard it is for, for just the average American to keep up with everything and not just want to turn it all off. Um, but, but yeah, it is our job to kind of keep the, the pressure on and make sure that people are hearing about the important things rather than just seeing the Trump tweets about the, the fraudulent mail-in ballots. You know, Chris, you worked in a White House and the White House is, a, is, is not just an administrative part of the U.S. government. Everything that is done there has a political component. Uh, you worked in a transition of the Obama administration. I, these conditions create a lot of challenges for Joe Biden running against Donald Trump uh, because it, it's it you know it's it's one thing for him to say, oh yeah, I'm I'm not Donald Trump, but if nothing else can gain traction, um, then he's not really able to advance an agenda. And we've got some gigantic problems in this country. We have the biggest economic crisis we've had since the Great Depression, the biggest public health crisis we've had since the uh, flu of 1918. Uh, we've got uh, a, a real sort of social unrest that that, that we haven't seen. Uh, seems like substantive domestic issues aren't going to be easy to move uh, to the center of people's attention this summer, or am I wrong? Maybe, maybe, maybe it's getting those jobs back that's really going to dominate the conversation. I think you're right. I mean, I think let's 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 stipulate this is not going to be an election that's going to be decided on policy. Obviously, the president's going to try to go back to his familiar well of going to immigration, and it's why he's in Yuma, Arizona tomorrow. Democrats ran well on health care in 2018. 
that will be a critical part of what Joe Biden talks about. But when you take a step back, um, there is a logic to the Biden strategy at this point. I mean, you know, if your goal is to make this election a referendum on Donald Trump and with his approval ratings in the low 40s, that's not uh, an irrational campaign strategy. And you've seen a, a pretty steady erosion in the president's approval ratings, uh, as well as a, um, a, a corresponding increase in Joe Biden's lead. Now, how solid all of that is in June versus in the fall is unclear after, you know, uh, after Trump starts to unload with his, uh, uh, with his vast uh, amount of um, uh, money and campaign ads against Biden. But the truth of the matter is, when Biden has emerged, um, he has done so in a very tactful way um, and in a very symbolic way, whether it's wearing a mask on Memorial Day to, to lay a wreath whether it is visiting the family of George Floyd. And in those moments, he's actually drawn a sharp symbolic contrast with Trump, which is really what he's trying to do at this point versus drawing policy contrast. And in the meantime, you know, he outraised uh, Trump by about $7 million last month uh, from his basement in Wilmington. So it, it's not an illogical strategy. And I think the broader question is, you know, given where we believe COVID is going, whether Trump can really try to maintain this series of rallies that he's intent on doing. Uh, and if we kind of go back to sort of partial shutdown again, uh, we may just be kind of looking at these, you know, um, kind of a campaign by proxy for the next several months. David, can I just jump in on that? Because, you know, fascinating as the argument was uh, over the weekend about whether a group of teenagers punched the Trump campaign with fake um, uh, acceptances of invitations to come to the rally. I think the real bottom line import of the rally was that if you only got 6,000 some odd people to go in there in a state that's highly enthusiastic about President Trump, that he hasn't even convinced his own uh, supporters to go take the risk of being in a big public space like that where they knew most people would not be wearing masks. And that tells you that while they may still vote for him, they're not believing what he's saying about, oh, it's just safe to turn around and open up, or at least they don't believe that they themselves are willing to take the risk right now of going out into a group that big. And I thought that was pretty fascinating. It tells you something about the Trump campaign. It tells you a lot about where the heads of his supporters are. Yeah, well, I've had my own theories about where the heads of his supporters are for a long time, but I'll leave that aside <laughs> for a moment. Um, as you look ahead at the, at, the, at the summer, Natasha, the flip side of what we're talking about here is that the summer looks like on the global stage, it's going to be a kind of United States free zone. And that people who want to take advantage of the complete absence of the United States will do so. And if you look at just the past, like, month, you know, you have this attack that I talked about in Australia. You have the Chinese cracking down in Hong Kong. You have the North Koreans blowing up, uh, you know, the peace-oriented outpost on the South, South Korean uh, border. You have the North Koreans rattling their sabers in terms of their production. You have the Russians and the Turks and other Gulf states getting more and more involved in Libya. You have Putin sort of saying, I'm going to be around forever, guys. And, you know, all of these things are things where there would might be pushback. And frankly, 
might be very big stories. And I'm just wondering if that's something else you think we might expect more of this summer as opportunists take advantage of the absence of the United States because we're busy gazing into Donald Trump's navel. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And and just to add to that, I think it's extra dangerous because they all know that the president's mind right now, if not for the last four years, is solely on winning in November and how susceptible he is to, for lack of a better word, bribes, how susceptible he is to these transactional relationships that he believes will, if he believes it will benefit his reelection, then it doesn't matter how it affects the rest of the world, how it affects the country. We saw it with what Bolton recounted in his book about um, China. We saw it just last night where the president said that in order to get a trade deal with China, he did put off the sanctions um, for the Uyghur uh, Muslim concentration camps. So this is a president now that seems to just be on a single track. And while he, his heart and his, his, his fire may not be, according to reporting, directly in right now the campaign mode, he's a bit tired of having to campaign constantly and he was a bit weary after that rally, um, he doesn't want to lose. And I think that makes the environment for adversaries who want to exploit that particularly dangerous. You know, Chris, one of the other things that as I look forward, you mentioned, and I, I'd just like to drill down on it a little bit further, is that uh, COVID's not going away. While everybody was talking about a second wave, the first wave has continued. The first wave is getting worse, as I noted, uh, in something like 31 states today. It's, it's, it's worse, and the, the, the virus is spreading uh, um, in a in a serious way, um, and, and the Congress doesn't have any appetite to do anything really at the moment. So one of the things that's going to happen, and you touched upon this over the course of the summer, is cities and states are going to go bankrupt. They're going to run out of money to be able to conduct programs, to whether they're peace you know, the police programs or their health programs or, or their other kinds of social programs uh, at just the wrong moment for the United States. Do, did you, have you given this some thought and, do, and, and what are your thoughts about how, how bad that could get? Well, we know how bad it's going to get. We've, we've heard Governor Cuomo talk about potentially running a $15 billion deficit in New York. And while, you know, people on the Hill like to portray this as a red state versus blue state issue, You've got red states like Ohio and Georgia that are running multi-billion dollar deficits. And, and in a world where state governments can't borrow money the way the federal government does, and in a world in which they, their fiscal year start on July 1, they only have one alternative, which is, or two, I guess, to cut social services like Medicaid or to start cutting employees. And so in the lesson we learned from the Great Recession in 2009 was, and that's one of the reasons why we in the Obama administration put so much money into state and local aid because we understood that that was in many ways the fastest way and easiest way to stabilize the workforce. And I think a huge mistake is happening right now in not focusing on that next wave of potential layoffs. But beyond that, we know that on July 31st, these extended unemployment benefits uh, are going to expire. Uh, we're still going to be looking at you know double-digit unemployment probably through 2021. That's a lot of people out of work. That's a lot of missed mortgages. That's a lot of missed rents. 
And as you continue to have this kind of um, sort of not really open government, uh, open economy and sort of half, uh, you know, half open, half not open, that creates a lot of uncertainty for businesses as to how to operate in this environment. So this kind of much vaunted V-shaped recovery that this administration talks about, I, I think it's not going to turn out that way. And ultimately, that is the card that Donald Trump wants to play going to re-election is, is an economy. Uh, and I just don't think he's going to have that at the moment unless something changes. Which makes it all the more remarkable that you don't see the White House out there pushing for a big stimulus that would take up the slack in September when, as we said at the beginning of the show here, all of this is supposed to expire. I can't think of a worse moment politically for President Trump or for the Republicans to let it expire. I mean, I could understand why they might want to let it expire on November 5th. But um, it, I just don't get it. Um, that happens so rarely. Uh, uh, but it, it, it does. And, you know, frankly, you know, the, the moment corresponds precisely with the Republican National Convention. You know, you're going to have Trump on a stage in Jacksonville, Florida, presumably, um, you know, touting his accomplishments and the headlines are going to be cities are going bankrupt. People don't have the money to support themselves. So you're exactly right. But David, let me just pick up quickly with you. And then I'd like to go around and sort of get one last sort of round of prognostications for the summer. Um, just, I'm not obsessed with this Australian DDoS attack, but, but it's just an example to me of how foreign government could go in and do something substantial. Um, and Trump has sought the aid of certain foreign governments and what he's doing. And one of the things he wants to do as soon as he can is make people distrust mail-in ballots, make people distrust how our system works. Doesn't it seem likely that this is going to be an area for foreign governments to fiddle around in and produce some evidence to support what he's saying? It does. And we've written about this a few times in the past few months, and I suspect we'll be doing it some more. So first on the Australians, what was fascinating was the Australians have been attacked before by Chinese state-sponsored actors. This time they said it was a state-sponsored actor, but they didn't say China. And I think one of the reasons people haven't paid that much attention is that for whatever reason, either absence of evidence or diplomatic timidity, they did not want to come out and say who the attacker was. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons that this has, uh, you know, not burst out as a particularly big story. It's also not entirely clear what the nature of the damage is. So it tells you that if you're going to get out and say you've been attacked, you better be willing to be specific about what your forensics are telling you about who did it and what the damage was. On the mail-in ballot, um, look, I think we're all in agreement that the advantage of a mail-in ballot is that it does give you a paper backup. So if there, we do go to a recount, there's a way to go do that. The disadvantage of a mail-in ballot is that it really relies on the integrity of your registration system. And if the registration database is not fully up to date, then, you know, we mail um, a mail-in ballot to David Rothkopf in New York, uh, but the system may still have him living in New Jersey or Washington. Or and You've been on this campaign to live in all 50 states in the past four years. It's anyway, kind of right? yes or Arafat um, approach. I just keep moving so nobody can. Yeah, <laughs> right. That seems like a good idea. Um, and uh, so 
it's going to become fairly important that it's going to become very important that the integrity of each one of these state registration systems is as good as we can make it and that they are really locked down. Because if you're the Russians, you don't need to get into all 50 registration systems. All you need to do is get into a couple in a few battleground states or a few battleground counties. And if it looks like someone's messing with that, it will be the greatest perception hack because it'll be easy to assume that they're into every system. And that's what really worries me the most. Yeah, exactly right. You just need one piece of evidence. I mean, he's making statements without any evidence right now, right? So all you need is one small piece of evidence and, and his, his forces will call us. And by the way, we've, we've learned Wisconsin and other places, we're entirely capable of screwing up new balloting systems. Look what happened in Georgia with the new machines uh, two weeks ago. We're entirely capable of screwing these up without Russian help. Exactly. And I think we'll have more evidence of that uh, this week. So, Natasha, we've just got a couple of minutes left, and I'd like to go to each of you with an open-ended question. And the question is essentially this. We get to the end of the summer. It's Labor Day 2020. We are in the home stretch of the election. As we look back on the summer of 2020, what do you think the big national security headlines going to have been? Oof. It's a good question. Well, there's the race for a COVID vaccine, um, which has big national security and geopolitical implications. Um, Who's going to get that first? What is the um, uh, development of it going to look like? How is it going to be distributed, et cetera? This all has implications for competition, of course, between China and the United States. Um, I think another big national security story is obviously going to be um, the Russians' continued interference, and not just the Russians, but also other um, foreign adversaries uh, trying to sow misinformation and disinformation prior to the election. And there will also be, I think, a greater emphasis on monitoring these um, domestic extremists, domestic terrorists um, that have in, in recent days and weeks become, it seems, even more emboldened um, as a result of, of the protests. So. Those three things I'll be watching out for. Okay. Uh, Chris, in terms of the domestic side of our national security, in terms of the domestic issues you track, what do you think is going to be the one that's dominant at the end of the summer? You know, I've been talking a lot about um, this potentially being a lost summer, and I think about, uh, you know, kids not going to summer camp, people not going to pool. This could potentially be a lost summer for us, you know, on a domestic front as well. You know, if we are not able to sort of – tamp down some of these outbreaks of COVID-19, we could be basically back where we were in May, uh, in September. And I think that concerns me, obviously, from a public health perspective, but from an economic perspective. And then when I think about this broader issue of racial justice, I mean, it feels like we are at this moment, and we haven't really talked about this. You know, we've got, um, last week, the president put out an executive order on police reform, the Senate's taking up a proposal this week, House is already moving on as well. This feels like this could be a moment where we could actually make some progress on that. Uh, now, obviously, it's going to require some compromise. It's certainly not going to be perfect from both sides. I would, it would, I would um, be very discouraged if we got to the end of the summer and we had not made any progress on this issue, and it basically gets punted to another year because it feels like things have finally come together for a long, long time on this issue. I would add, by the way, I guess that by the time we get to the end of the summer and by the time we get to November, people will have a better view of what they think of their state government than they have ever had in their lives. 
you know, that, that politics is going to be looked at um, on, on multiple levels at once. David, I'm very reluctant to say this. Uh, and in fact, I almost never say it over the course of the hundreds of podcasts uh, that we've done. But uh, same question to you, and I'm giving you the last word. Like, talk about living dangerously, right? Um, I think that we haven't heard the end from the Chinese uh, in this election. You know, we're focused on Russia. But um, the Chinese have a lot of reasons to want to see Donald Trump not reelected. And so you could be in a situation where the Russians are in for the purpose of disruption and the Chinese are in for the purpose of of embarrassing uh, President Trump. Um, The second is China is going to be the selected uh, foreign policy topic for uh, President Trump. Uh, I think it's going to be a little bit harder for him to argue that Vice President Biden was soft on China now that his own national security advisor has come out and and uh, made clear that uh, President Trump was willing to uh, be quiet about uh, the um, mass internment of Uyghurs and others uh, in return for you know slightly better chance of getting a trade deal. Uh, that sounds like soft on China to me. Uh, but you're going to see the Chinese, you're going to see the administration ramp up on uh, a number of actions against China. They just announced another one as we were recording all of this that they had briefed us on earlier in the day involving a further crackdown on Chinese news organizations in the U.S. Last week, they um, banned or moved to ban, haven't done the final uh, element of this. Um, underwater um, fiber optic cable coming from Hong Kong to the United States. Uh, Every week you're seeing some increase in the pressure and there's no reason to believe that Xi Jinping is just going to sit around and take that. Meanwhile, um, I'm sure that somewhere in the world, Kim Jong-un is sitting there with his um, purloined copy, uh, early copy of Bolton's memoir, uh, flipping through it on the beach and and, at, at, uh, uh, his hideaway, and um, is probably thinking this would be a superb moment to go make a demonstration, missile flight, uh, or some other uh, action that will make it clear to the, that the president's diplomacy has gone nowhere. I'm not sure why he needs to make it clear. Bolton made that pretty clear himself, uh, and we've all been saying it for some time. Uh, he's not likely to sit there quietly during the election. Okay, well, I was I, I was exactly telling the truth because I'm not going to give you the exact last word because I'd like to add to your list there uh, and to Natasha's list. I, I will predict that Bibi Netanyahu does something with the territories in the time remaining because he sees the clock is running out and he thinks he can get away with annexation under Trump and it'll be much harder under the next president. And we should never write the Middle East off, uh, you know, in, in, in these kind of calculuses. But having said that, uh, I think all of you have given us much to think about as we look forward to the summer. Um, and I am grateful for that. And I'm sure our listeners are grateful for that. I want to thank uh, Natasha Bertrand, who's a national security correspondent and Politico and an MSNBC contributor. I would like to thank um, Chris Liu, who is the former cabinet secretary and deputy secretary of labor in the Obama administration. I want to thank David Sanger of the New York Times and of the Kennedy School. Uh, I hope you guys will join us again at the end of the summer. We can grill you on how you got this so right or wrong or 
or or perhaps along the way if something uh, if something breaks. Um, and for those of you who want to follow the rest of what we've got coming this week, go to the dsrnetwork.com. We've got some bonus uh, episodes as we do each week. This week we're doing a special agenda 2021 conversation with Nobel Prize winning economist. Uh, Joe Stiglitz about what he thinks the economic agenda should be for the next administration. You won't want to miss that in addition to our regular programming. So go to the dsrnetwork.com and if you like, become a member, get a DSR deep state radio mask, which is the best way to avoid COVID and show everybody you care about the world um, and come back again soon. In the meantime, also stay safe. Bye-bye.